Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Bart Verheyen. Uh, he is the founding guru at GuruScan, international knowledge management speaker, makes no- and he makes knowledge-driven business decisions and helps enable enables his customers to do so as well. Uh, so welcome to the show. Thanks, Tua. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. Uh, very excited to talk about knowledge management. Uh, you've been making some very interesting posts on LinkedIn um, and uh, would love to just dive right into that. And for, what's your take on what knowledge management is? Wow, that's a that's a big question to, to get started with. <laughs> so um, to sort of frame that question a little bit, I would say um, for me, first off, knowledge is a lot more than information. Sometimes people think knowledge is about just information or content. Knowledge is about a lot more. Knowledge is also about what people know, people in the organization or people in the broader network of the organization. So then thinking about knowledge management, there is a part which is concerned with um, the content or the explicit knowledge, if you're more into the knowledge management jargon, um, and a part that's more with the tacit knowledge. Um, I really like the um, idea that uh, was Coined, I think it's uh, the the knowledge management strategy that was first initiated by uh, Shell. So the the, the Dutch uh, or now it's British. They moved to uh, to Britain, um, petrochemical company, and they basically said that knowledge management is connecting people to people, people to content, um, communities of practice, so groups of people that have a common interest or or uh, background. And it's lessons learned. So looking backwards, like, hey, what did we do and what did we learn from it? And then within those four pillars, they had like a lot of activities and projects and so on. I think that is a very well-defined way of approaching it. And you could fit almost any knowledge management initiative or project in at least one of those four pillars. And I really like that there's a big emphasis on people, like people to people, people to content, communities of practice, which is basically a group of people, and lessons learned, which is basically people looking backwards. I would like also to have a more forward-looking thing in there, like how can we sort of develop and and integrate more with learning or learning and development, which is very often the, the like a corporate stance, but have people learn and learn towards where you want to go as an organization. I think that's also a very powerful uh, promise of knowledge management. That's very interesting. Um, makes me excited to be part of it because that was like, whoa, okay, that's that sounds like something I, I would love to do. I'm I'm very focused at, at my current role, very focused on the explicit knowledge right now, just because the the organization itself uh, needs to organize it, and that's why they hired me. Um, and uh, but the the long term has been on that implicit, and that was really clear for me now to like understand how to do that. We're actually going to go on an offsite very soon, and in two weeks, and that'll be the first time where we'll actually clash together as people because we're because we're all remote at the moment. Um, and it's so interesting because the 
what you said about there's the explicit and the implicit and the explicit is like the uh, the 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 um iceberg the tip the tip of the iceberg that is over the the ocean and then there's just like this yeah. dark like totally almost totally obscure things that's inside of people's heads that we as as you know as as their scientists don't even understand what consciousness is and then like how how do you um if we don't know what it is then how do we actually like um understand what we're even talking about when we're talking about people clashing together do you have any thoughts on that like the kind of unconscious like maybe even we can go into psychology or philosophy but like yeah just... well it's there 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 are different things i think to say about it there's um there are the more like skills that are really hard to make explicit there's the um i think in german you would call that fingerspitzengefühl like it's it's the there are the things that you know how to do but that are really hard for you to explain to others yeah um maybe there's the most simple uh, uh, analogy there is like riding a bike so you can talk to someone on riding a bike or you could give them a book on riding a bike but still if they get on a bike for the first time like sort of making it all work together like you have to keep on pedaling on the pedals you have to look forward and you have to sort of do something with the handlebars and sort of find your balance in your in your whole body that is something that you can never learn by reading you cannot like keep on reading until you know how to ride a bike you have to just do it and then you know then it sort of starts making sense to you and maybe you learn it very quickly maybe you have a a a longer learning curve i don't know but it is something that you will never learn from explicit knowledge you can look at youtube you can look at other people doing it you can read about it you can i don't know you could do anything you could study technical material you could but you will never learn to ride a bike by just by not riding a bike you need to be doing it and yeah. that's how you learn it yeah and so what I percentage think, what percentage of knowledge for business is like that is like riding a a, a bike what like it, i mean business is vast so <laughs> it um there's there's quite a lot of research done on it always in specific use cases or specific companies and um the numbers vary quite a lot but it's usually around 80 20 percentage 20 percent is documented is explicit knowledge it's wow. <laughs> written down somewhere and 80 percent is stuff that people have actually been doing been sort of looking at been thinking about been uh considering um but have never done or have not been ending up in the in the final product or the final release or in the final plan that you should have produced whatever the thing is that you're producing yeah that's crazy um that it's 80 percent like it's like it feels crazy that i'm now focusing on explicit knowledge rather the, than the, the wildest number i found was 95 percent in a specific yeah. um uh, like a scientific paper that i found 95 percent in that particular case was um implicit tacit knowledge not written down anywhere just people knew what to do uh and, and didn't know that hadn't written it down anywhere i wonder if you have any insight into like I, I'm very interested in the kind of cultural universi universalities between um, hunter-gatherers and with, uh, uh, you know, modern agricultural society and pastoralists and all that stuff. And I think a lot about, there's a book called Range, which uh, by David Epstein, who who talks about like a tribe in Siberia that, um, you know, like 
they had modern researchers come and try to ask them what they were doing. And they're like, why, what are you, what are you talking about? We just do it. Um, and like, and I think like so much of the hunter gatherer stuff is just like generation, generation, like that cultural cognition evolved over long stretches of time. Um, and, and then we had writing happened and all these things. And now we're like, it seems like we're very confused about what we do. Um, whereas they're very, they're oversimplification, but they're very like, it's very simple for hunter gatherers what they do. What we now do is highly complex. What do you think about this? Like where we're entering, and it seems like we're entering into an age of even more complexity and more kind of overwhelm and information anxiety. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I would say it's some maybe to sort of contradict a little bit the stuff that I've been saying in the beginning is I I think there is a role for that like um, explicit knowledge. So if you if you really know what to do or you have a like a standard guideline or you want to sort of uh, communicate something to a larger group and a larger group like thousands of people or thousands of customers or end users or whatever that group is, then having something explicit like a short movie that you can share or a document or a like a 10 step process to get something done, that is far easy, far more easy to communicate. But if you're working in a in a complex environment where things change all the time and you don't know what what people will encounter or what they want to do or what your colleagues actually want to do because they want to solve a complex problem or they want to solve some some difficult challenge, that's usually when you want to get people together. You want to get people to communicate. And I think um, if you look at like ancient uh, uh, or even prehistoric uh, groups then generally people tended to collaborate in smaller groups like they had their tribes and they had their maybe clans of different tribes together um and that was more or less it and you had people that specify in a certain role and i think still right now you see a lot of people that stay in a job for like one or two years and then do something else they probably will never really learn something that sets them apart from all the other people. So the real specialists, someone yeah. who is a real specialist, they generally have at least gotten like 10, 15 years of experience under their belts. They really know what they're doing. They've been working in a certain field for longer. They may have switched formal positions, but they kept on working in a certain field or or area of expertise and really been carving that out and really know what they're doing. And after a while, and it's, it's fun to hear people talk about what they do sometimes they just it ends up with them like feeling it's wrong or um people in a like a production environment like a factory or or like a big like industrial sites those people can very often before looking at gauges or numbers they can smell for instance that it's wrong or they can hear they hear some sort of sound or a, a certain pitch or a certain tone that's off and they, they they will just walk around they'll say something's wrong then look at the gates to find out what's actually wrong instead of the other way around yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that, that is that is really what's going on with that like if you're really really good you're sort of in that next level you don't you don't take the textbook like hey my pressure is really high right now in, I don't know, the sixth step of the, the, the factory. I should look in my guidebook what that actually means. 
Yeah. Like for those people, it works the other way around. They already know something's wrong and they will look like, hey, where is it wrong? And how does that sort of, uh, how does that look like in my, I don't know, computer or any other system that they're looking at? Yeah, that's very interesting because you have like just this embedded knowledge inside that the bottom layers of the iceberg for the individual's unconscious experience, just based on the hard knocks of going through 10 to 15 years of trying to solve one general problem. Um, it's very interesting. Then, um, and there's no way to like really get that without going through those experiences. Why? And there's a couple of different things I want to talk about. There's the strangers because we talked about there was cross-group and collaboration across prehistoric groups. We were both very, very limited, only in your physical region, and you had enemies in your physical region as well. So it's like very, very complex. Um, uh, but now in our modern environments, we're dealing with a lot of strangers, and companies specifically pay a lot of money in order to hire the right people. And those things never work. Like you're still probably at, I don't know, 50%. Like um, it depends on the company, of course, but uh, like you're still going to make mistakes and hiring the wrong person uh and then the wrong person could be for reasons of like criminality but it also could just be reasons of not not being a good fit for the organization um and then uh so that's a really interesting topic we could go into is like what is how, how can we manage that kind of complexity when it's dealing with strangers inside of organizations and like quick and scaling to our company is scaling. So it's like um, the, the, the demand for people is high. Uh, but at the same time, we can't, the, the, the mistakes are bigger because, you know, we're scaling and the, the pressure of scaling is so interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I, um, so one, one of the concepts that we tend to use very often is called the um, Dunbar number. So that's uh, Robert Dunbar, a British anthropologist, if I'm correct. Uh, he studied group size and the groups, the, the size of groups in primates and extrapolated that to, to humans and sort of came to a number of 150 people, which are the, the people in the world that you as an individual human being can have a meaningful relationship with at any point in time. Of course, these this group can shift. You can, you will lose some of your high school friends and they will be replaced with work friends. And then later on replaced. If you move, for instance, from one side of the country to the other, you will get new friends and you will lose some of the old ones because you just, well, you don't get back to them again. So that group will change in, in like the way that the people that are in there, but at any point in time, it will be 150 people roughly. Of course, it will differ a little bit, but not that much. And why is that? Because if you want to have more people in that group, you need to give them considerable time, which he calls social grooming. So you need to invest time with those people to really know them well, to really know what their parents are doing, what, I don't know, what issues they're experiencing at any point in time, and so on. So if you want to expand that group for yourself, you want to get to 200 or 250 people, you need to invest so much time in social grooming that you will not have time to do your your basic work or to do stuff that you want to do in your own life. But that's there is a limit to the number of people. And I think one of the examples, not sure if, if uh, Dunbar named that one or someone else, but 
I think FDR, so uh, the the president in the U.S., I think he had about 44,000 people in his address book, his Rolodex at the time. Of course, he doesn't know these people uh, personally. That's not possible. But still, he could call them, of course, and he had like a lot of people in his team to connect to the right person in time. Um, and again, that extends to a company or an organization too. If if you are the CEO of a company with 20,000 people, you will probably only know 1% of those people yourself. And of course, you have a team, you have your own, you have your assistants, and you can, because you have that powerful position as a CEO, if you say something, people will sort of gather around. But still, you will not be able to know all the experts. Like There can be an expert that just started with your company a month ago who is a top expert, you you need to get to the next challenge or problem, but you don't know that person. So I, I think that there, so really building that social fabric, that uh, those social connections between people, you can use different methods to do that. There's um, organizational network analysis or social network analysis kind of applications. You, the approach that we very often take is, to make a knowledge map of the organization and to sort of connect people to other people that are very similar in knowledge because that's usually like the kinds of people that are very same, if not similar to you. And therefore that's people you really like to exchange with. And that will then give you a connection to others. And that will also help to sort of make a more connected organization. That's very interesting. Um, so you're talking about CEO of a 20,000 person company. And it's really interesting to think about history. And we've got, you know, remote work happening right now. And we have this because it's the technology around communications have rapidly improved so that we are doing this Zoom call. You're in uh, Europe. I'm in, I'm in California. It's 8 a.m. here. And like we can do this because some company uh, just built this technology that replaced Skype with this this architecture that allows us to fluidly speak on video and record it and all these different things. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about remote work in the time of like, you know, the emperor of Rome, because the emperor of Rome was doing remote work. Like when he would go to battle, he would do remote work. It was just not really well done in terms of the technology. You just have to send a letter to the, to the guy and like send letters everywhere and like write. I remember, I think I was reading about one, one emperor who would, who would dictate seven letters at the same time. Um, so he'd have seven people that he would be writing letters to, uh, and then, then send them out and everything like that. So remote work was done before it just wasn't, doesn't, wasn't done really well. And now we're moving fully into remote work, which is fascinating for me to really, to get to know people at a working level uh, through a, a screen all day where I'm in the woods in California, like uh, totally uh, out, out here in the woods. And, um, and uh, so it's really interesting for me. I would love to understand more about how you connect people with very similar knowledge. Have you been doing a lot of remote work um, stuff? Are you remote or? Um... Yeah, well, I'm, I'm personally, I would say I'm not very remote because I am in Amsterdam in the uh, that's the capital of the Netherlands maybe I think Amsterdam has a even more uh, more well known than the than the country itself so uh, but 
we at, at Gurskin, we do work with a remote team. So we have people in Spain, people in different places in, in the Netherlands, people, uh, we have someone in, uh, in India even. So that's already working remote. I think it's, um, there are uh, big advantages, especially with all the technology right now on and working remote. Um, I would say, of course, for what we are doing right now, this is a perfect solution. Um, but for me, um, being able to find ways to work remote in an asynchronous manner, so that's really using the advantages of apps like uh, like Slack, or or if you're confined to a Teams environment, then it's Teams. Um, really being able to work when you want, when you feel like being productive and being able to pick up what others are uh, looking for with you and being able to deliver that to them in whatever file share or communication platform or interface that you're using. Um, I really see that that is a, uh, a big benefit because it enables people to work whenever they want, whenever they feel like it to also enable them to live the lives that they want. So, whatever that is with, with sports or with kids or with um, whenever they feel productive, if they're a more morning person or an evening person or whatever they they need to do. I think being able to work asynchronously in a still productive manner, that is still, I think, a really big challenge. And, and a lot of people try to tackle that, but it's um, I still see for especially larger organizations that it sort of boils down to yeah, you can work whenever you want, but you need to show up on Monday morning because we have our weekly stand-up with the team and then you need to be there on uh, on Tuesday morning because we have the, the I don't know, two weekly stand-up with the bigger group and then you need to be there for your bilateral meeting with your manager and you need to be there because we have something else and then we, you need to be there to do the, the, the recap and you need to be there to do the forecast and, and so on. So it ends up in tons of synchronized meetings synchronized meetings like people having to be together even if it's on a call still that sort of locks down your whole work schedule because then you have to sort of cram in all your like real work in between those times and if you say well i feel really um productive right now i just want to focus on what i'm doing and i know what i'm doing and if you want to align with someone else please do but don't bother me with that and please don't force me to be there because i feel productive right now i know what i'm doing and i will give you an update in our like a status report somewhere where you can pick up that status report when you feel like doing it and of course there needs to be alignment that you need to update people and you need to sort of make sure that you have that organized but i think that's that's the big challenge. If you manage to do that, then you can really also work globally. People don't need to be online at the same time. That's, but I think if I look at what's happening right now, that not a lot of people are even close to getting there. Yeah, not even like thinking about it. It's very interesting in terms of our company uh, and GitLab. I've done some interviews with the CEO of GitLab a couple of times and um, yep. he is really interesting because they, I think he's yeah he's Dutch as well, um, and uh, and then so they they do asynchronous first as a value, uh, and that's part of their specific history of a company. As a company, they um, they uh, uh, Sid was in San Francisco, and the the CTO was in uh, India or Ukraine or something like that, 
And, um, and so they were just like naturally started that as the seed of the organization and then built that out into a large, large organization that does it pretty well. Um, and then it's interesting in our case, because that's more of a, like a very technical engineering based thing. We're not as engineering based. We're in the humanities, uh, kind of thinking about technology as this other, as this, like, um, as the wizard and the wand, basically like the, the, the wizard and the wizard needs to be trained in humanities and how they work and everything like that in order to, um, uh, deploy the wand, which is technology. Um, and so, and we're a very cons consultative firm. So we, we go on and take projects inside of organizations. Um, and for us, so the meetings are important. Meetings are really important to actually establish scope, make sure the, the all those signals that we were talking about, like the background, the unconscious of the individual at least has some sort of anchor in, in synchronous time. Um, but at the same time, I think we can learn from GitLab and start to move what can be done async over to async because the uh, having a whole bunch of meetings, like you're saying, it's like that that feeling of being productive and then that the, the feeling of having a conversation are two different things. Like you need to be alone to do deep work, um, and uh, most of the time. Yeah, um, and, and and I mean, really, indeed, I, I, I GitLab is a really good example. I think they're one of the furthest, if not the furthest, uh, of all the of all the companies I know of still finding that like async as a as first async as a starting point for everything you do and it's hard because you need to change the processes you need to change your your sort of your view probably on how work is done like oh no but we always used to have a meeting for that yeah well if you can't have that meeting what would you do what would be like you rethink the way you do stuff in an asynchronous matter without sending like tons of emails all 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 around <laughs> yeah. yeah no one no one likes that except for maybe the person writing them um okay yeah or or, or maybe the person who gets paid just to like send and read emails yeah there, there is of course a lot of uh in that organizational part of the organization like the internal organization and running the internal organization like there are a lot of people who just make money off running the internal organization interesting you you would usually call them overhead and i think there's also another guy and then he was also dutch who, who sort of thought about a cell structure for a company he said well if you're up to 60 or 70 people i think generally you see that there's no overhead because everyone knows everyone and you just do stuff and if you need to sort of um arrange something like you need to uh, arrange a couple of uh, company cars or whatever you just get together with a small group you sort of think about it and then you you sort of buy those cars or lease those cars whatever you do but if it grows bigger if it grows to 150 200 300 people then all of a sudden you get these staff departments you get like someone who's in charge of all the cars that someone will never let go of those cars. Maybe the car is like a bad solution over time, but that person will sort of keep going with the cars. We will not sort of change that into a mobility contract where you can use other means of transportation or if people work from home still, they will get a car. Doesn't matter they work from home. Doesn't matter they don't need it. Doesn't even matter they don't have a driver's license. They get one because that person or maybe that department is responsible for it. Same goes for, for all of your like staff departments that you have. They will keep themselves in place. They will just attract like things to do or they will keep non-productive procedures because they sort of that's that's their reason of being. 
that's really interesting because that can go into kind of a deep philosophical web as well, which is just like, once you've created something, that thing is now there and it's not going away. Like, it's just like, I mean, it's, it, it goes away in, in, in time, but it doesn't really like in, as long as it's in the process of time, you know, creation, cessation, sustaining, and then falling off, as long as it's in that sustaining phase, like good luck trying to get rid of it. Um, and, yeah, uh, that's and, really, really hard. Yeah. And well, especially, you know, in, especially, I would say, in a growing company, because in a growing company, everyone says, well, we're growing, so it's probably need- going all right. We're making more revenues, probably even more profits than last year. So why should we get rid of us? We can just, and why can't we even grow? We should. We are now pushing more contracts in a very, um, uh, in a very costly manner with very stubborn procedures so therefore we need more people no you need to work smarter and get us to make a self-service counter and just quit the whole department in the first place but no one will sort of conceive of thoughts like that to sort of arrange for them to be gone it will always be about oh our department needs to grow as well um and it, like, and then thinking through like, how would you actually change that? If it, it, it brings into a whole another layer of complexity of there's the like, the the centralized way that companies usually run, which is very centralized around a strong executive, uh, and then who has the power, dictatorial power that can kind of like do things, and sometimes they're benevolent, sometimes they're not. Um, and then like, so thinking about how to change that, you'd have a strong CEO or or somebody who who actually has the power to like actually remove the department. Um, uh, but that isn't like it's 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 always very interesting because then it gets into the actual corporate architecture as well of like equity how much equity is actually outside of the executives and and like if you want really good talent you have to pay them and and if you're a startup then you can't really pay them with them with a lot of cash unless you're really really well funded and uh (laughs) so there's a lot of a lot of complexity and it's just it's like it's like and it's funny because modernity has created so much convenience but at the same time, in that search for convenience, we've also created a whole bunch of complexity that makes everything more complex and like less convenient. And like, I'll give my fire insurance as an, as an example. I'm in the woods in California, which have been burning down often, and the business model of insurance is failing. Um, and so, like, the the my roof just collapsed from a uh, from a snow load, um, and uh, and then I have insurance, so I made a claim on my insurance, and then they like they dropped me um, from the insurance because I made the claim because they're trying to get out of the business. Um, and this was like a perfect opportunity to do it. And so it's like <laughs> yeah. this beautiful thing that we've created abstractions of, of insurance. When that fails, it's like, oh my God, it's like such a problem that my ancestors never really had to deal with it. They had to deal with like death and like sickness and stuff like that, of course. But um, but like the just level of like ridiculousness that we find ourselves in modernity is, is interesting. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, no. So I, I think if you look at, um, so maybe if you look at, especially if you look at organizations, um, the hard thing is to, um, to make sure that you don't sort of um, reduce that complexity too much. Mm-hmm. If you do that, you sort of flatten everything out, and it, you will you will not be able to also to respond to whatever changes are coming from the outside from there um so i think that's called 
requisite variety. So you need to have enough variety to sort of ad uh, adapt to all the changes that are coming from the outside world. Um, but again, you don't need to have too much variety, and that's that's a a like a continuous challenge. You need to you need to continuously balance um, your um, exploration and exploitation. If you don't do exploration, you don't do anything new. So therefore, you will be out of out of business soon because your competitors will have done something new or something uh, that breaks open the market and and sort of gets you out of business. If you don't do exploitation enough, you don't make money on the stuff that you're good at or the the the, the, the tools you're producing or the services that you're delivering. Then you don't have the cash to actually do the exploration in the first place. <laughs> so it's a balance and and there will always be tension because the people in exploitation will say yeah well hey we are making all the money here and you're just burning it down in your ex explorations and the people at exploration will say well we're the future of the company if not for us you would be the last ones here yeah <laughs> and that's like your 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 attention there and and i mean in the end it's like how much money time effort people you can allocate to these processes is always a debate yeah. Like how how much money should we invest in 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 R and D? Should yeah. it be? And I, I think that's that's business specific. But it's some companies they they spend insane amounts of money in R and D. Some companies it's 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 nothing or or close to nothing. I think every company should do. I think a lot of companies should do more in exploration, so more in trying to improve themselves and whether you call it R&D or not. I mean, changing processes is very often not considered to be R&D or research mm -hmm. and development. It's very often just sort of business as usual, like slowly you're progressing somewhere. Lately, people tend to call it transformation, but it's just about changing your organization and your business to better fit the future. Mm. that's cool so this talk of R&D is very interesting because I know you have some experience in, in thinking about semiconductors and semiconductors are like this thing where R&D is so important um, and, uh, and it's so the specific business model is so crazy that there are sort of kind of things that um, incentives that align to create these massive businesses uh, and the TCM, I think it is, the one in Taiwan has such a, a fascinating story because in the 70s and the 80s, we had the the United States inside of Silicon Valley, called it Silicon Valley because it was doing Silicon, built large yeah. companies. And then we went through the 70s and then large inflation need to cut costs. Um, and so they started to outsource to other places around the world, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Taiwan. And then Taiwan, the state government, one really smart guy within the government was like, okay, well, let's let's make Taiwan the place. And they made it. They did it. Like they yeah. actually did it. So Taiwan is now the place for semiconductors. China's trying to do the same thing that they did in Taiwan and create their own semiconductor field. Um, what, do you have any thoughts about what you've learned recently in terms of, of semiconductors or like ideas uh, of, of this specific R&D type of thing, how they did that so well? Yeah, well, I think I think Taiwan is a really good uh, 
good example. I think there's also a political aspect there that they're trying. They're they are really really important. It, it, that's it's hard to to overestimate the importance of Taiwan in the whole semicon uh, value chain. I think if I remember correctly, they do they produce about fifty or sixty percent of all the global semiconductors, and that's stuff that's in almost everything you touch, like the whole day, like your computer, your laptop, all the different screens that you're looking at, whether it's your flat screen or your phone or your the, the, your your TV, it's everything. But also um, LED lights, it's in even stuff that you would not consider to be an electronic device, still that has some sort of semicon in it. So, and all of that stuff, 56% comes from Taiwan. So that's, it's hard to overestimate the the importance there. Um, and even, I mean, you, you mentioned um, uh, America also trying to maybe, or China trying to get some of that uh, business in Europe now. Mm. Um, there's a, the, the European Union also sort of found out now that <laughs> Taiwan actually has a really big position there. Um <laughs> Oh yeah, and in, the, in the U.S. too. We, we uh, the, I think the, the U.S. is also now going to or trying to build a um, uh, a semicon fab, so a, a fabrication uh, facility for semiconductors. Same as in in Europe, but of course in Europe it's well maybe not more difficult, but different difficult <laughs> because of the different countries. And then it's like if you're going to build like a huge fabrication place in Europe where should it be if you build yeah. it in Germany they take the advantage if you build it in France then it's further away from all their prospective customers and so on so there's always that discussion where it should be so and of course in the Netherlands we have a company called ASML who's basically making the machines to produce those chips again so um their, I think their biggest customer or one of their biggest customers is TSMC in Taiwan, who's making that stuff. Um, and I mean, in that flow, it's the the amount of uh, money spent on reaching like the next level. It's still, it's all uh, more or less governed by uh, a Morse law who said that the I think it's about the number of transistors on a um, on on a square millimeter of of um, of chip would uh, double every two years. I think something like that. At least it's an exponential law, so it goes really really fast. Um, I think he la- he died this recently. year, even like, yeah. like recently, a couple of months ago. Yeah. Uh, but still, up to now, if you fit like the developments of computer chips still up to now and he did that uh prediction in the 70s mm-hmm. still it sort of fits pretty well of course it has some variation it went above it at some point in time as well i think with the pentium processors they were so mm-hmm. fast that it even sort of <laughs> went mm-hmm. faster than moore's law but still up to now the whole industry there is pushing so hard to make even more processors on a chip with layers and with with um, uh, ultraviolet lights and with like really really sensitive uh, equipment, that is insane about the amount of investment they do and amount of research and development they do, and also the the uh, number of collaborations and and integrations between different companies that are there. 
let's talk about that. Uh, what, um, how does, how do they do knowledge management really well in semiconductor stuff? So, uh, uh, well, the company I, I know most about there is is, uh, is is ASML in the Netherlands. They, they, they produce the chip machines. Um, what a couple of things that they do really, really well is they, they work together with a lot of um, very uh, knowledgeable uh, uh, companies themselves that are their suppliers. They they work together a lot with uh, with Zeiss, which is the uh, lens manufacturer. It's a German company. It's already a very old company uh, that's been producing uh, lenses already for for I think a hundred years or even more. Um, they work together with them really well, really well. I think they even made a, a strategic investment, if not a a joint venture together, like a a pretty solid uh, collaboration there. Um, they have a history of buying a smaller and larger um, high-tech, very knowledgeable companies. I think one of the the, the best known there is Simer for also integrating with their equipment, really getting the people, getting lots of really smart people to work on these issues. Um, they do their recruitment. That's literally a global recruitment that they do. So finding people wherever they are in the world to work on um, uh, optical engineering or other uh, really difficult tasks that they work with. I think that's the the most important thing there is really working together with everyone that you can get uh, to get those problems uh, solved. Yeah, it's interesting that they do it with their customers. So they actually go across the across the boundary to to actual customers. With customers, with with their suppliers, just um, they've they've even had their 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 biggest customers at one point because they they felt that the um, whenever the economy was like cooling off or going down a little bit, like people were buying like a little bit less iPhones, and then therefore like Apple sort of took it like a slight hit, and then like Apple ordered less from their suppliers. Because they want first wanted to sort of use their stock of uh, their their inventory of all the the stuff they had, and then all of the suppliers sort of ordered even less from their suppliers and so on, and then like the machine manufacturers of chip machines that are all the way in the end of that chain, they sort of had like a year with no orders. So wow. for ASML, there there's one or two times in their history that they sort of had a really sharp decline. Uh, I think it's with the the 2009 crisis, like the uh, Lehman Brothers banking crisis, things like that. Like it was a global crisis; a lot of people ordered a lot less. Therefore, like all their orders were just postponed for a while. They had no new orders for six or nine months or whatever, and uh, that really hit them hard. And that's when they had their uh, and and if they, they would go bankrupt, their their biggest customers would not have their next machine and therefore they would not have their next product. So it was so, so fragile. It seems so fragile. Apple or Intel or Samsung, they rely on ASML to push out the next machine, which can make an even better chip, enabling them to make their next flagship model, like flagship model of whatever they are producing, a phone, a tablet, or a uh, a computer chip like for Intel. 
That's wild. Um, uh, well, yeah, this has been a really great conversation. Really appreciate you coming on. Uh, and uh, how can find how can the uh, audience find out more about what you're working on? Um, if someone wants to learn more, um, I'm I'm relatively active, as you mentioned in the beginning, on LinkedIn. So I got quite a lot of um, uh, quite a lot of posts on the, on LinkedIn. You can always reach out to me if you need something. Um, there's probably a Calendly link in there if you want to sort of have a quick chat with me. You can always book a, a 20 minute call and well discuss something you want to discuss. Uh, if you want to learn more on the uh, GuruScan knowledge management application, we also do run a monthly open workshop where we just sort of, you just get a test account and we just run through the program in a very short manner. It's not a lot of sales. It's not a lot of pitching. It's just using the application. You can just see for yourself, hey, does this, does this approach help us to solve our knowledge management challenges? Uh, that's very cool. I, I'm going to actually go to that, I think. Um, well, thank you so much and uh, talk to you soon. Right. Thanks, Stuart. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, III. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.